Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. Again, happy holidays, everybody. Um, we have an interview. Chris Ying and I are joined by John Doerr and Ryan Pachacharam. Uh, they are the authors of Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now. Ryan is a, a, a partner at Kleiner Perkins, a venture capital firm, one of the great ones of all time. Uh, I've gotten to be friends with John Doerr over a 10 plus year period. We had mutual friends. And if you don't know John Doerr, that's fine, but you more than likely use some product or interact with technology. Uh, I would probably say 100% chance um, <laughs> because of something he saw in, in an entrepreneur or a technology many years ago and his success rate, his track record is 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 uh, really historic because uh, John used to work at Intel under one of the great great uh, CEOs Andy Grove and you know left Intel to become a VC at Kleiner Perkins a venture capital which is investing in early stage companies and he invested in things like the beginning of the internet in Netscape Sun Microsystems I think he was the first investor in Amazon.com in Apple in Google in in all of these things that have become enormously meaningful in all of our lives. And, you know, when, when John asked for something, you know, I, I'm going to listen and I'm going to try to, to return the favor because he's one of the most gracious, most amazingly nice, kind people I know. And uh, he really does truly care about the future of this planet and making a difference. John is just an amazing, amazingly funny guy. I, I remember being at his house once <laughs> and I was in his study and I think on, on like there was like a uh, like in a bowl on his desk I, I saw like the first iPhone like I think it came out like 2003 2004 somewhere around there but this was a couple of years back so clearly it was a, it was like 10 generations removed and I turned it on and I opened like <laughs> there was only two names in it Johnny Ive <laughs> and the late Steve Jobs, you know, it's like, that's how like important this person is in the world of technology and in Apple and all of these things. It was just like, and it just was like paraphernalia for him, like a desk weight, <laughs> but it should be in like the Smithsonian. But, um, I explained this to you guys, because if you don't know him, there's serious gravitas in what John Doerr does. Anything he says, anything he invests in, anything he writes about has great weight. And he has a collection of some of the most uh, successful, important movers and shakers in the world that have contributed to this book. And one of the things that he has become very famous for is adopting the practice of OKRs, Objective Key Results, something that we use in Momofuku quite a bit, something that we now do in Major Doma Media. And the, the key goal here in this book is reducing carbon emissions by 59 gigatons, which is 59 billion tons. Billion basically. tons. Yeah. yeah. Zeroing out yeah. our emissions by 2050. That's a big O. Chris has been involved in net, uh, net zero emissions for some time, him and, and the restaurateur Anthony Mint. And if you listen to the podcast, we call someone Eeyore. That's you, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> We were, sorry, Anthony, we were talking about sorry, you. Sorry, Anthony. Yeah, we're talking about you, who genuinely has made it one of his life's missions to make sure that the restaurant industry is more aware 
about the impact of, of, of carbon emissions. And you guys have been doing that for like almost 10 years, right, Chris? Been trying for 10 years to try to make zero emissions both feel achievable and also desirable. Like people, we're just trying, like the whole point of the organization was to make people think that like being a, a zero emissions operation was something you should aspire to. And and Anthony, like Dave said, has become much more of like the, the walk the earth evangelist than I have. But uh, yeah, I feel extremely fortunate uh, given how hard that has been. And Dave, like, you know, it's like this problem is so big and impossible yeah. to achieve. Like, it's so difficult. We talk about this moment in the podcast uh, with Ryan and John. When Anthony sat me down, I think he came to New York. He's like, Dad, I got to talk to you about something. <laughs> and she just scared the fucking bejesus out of me. Because <laughs> yeah. a lot of this was the catalyst really was the birth of his first child. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to be very honest. I understood it, but I was apathetic, much like most of you probably listening. Right. And I'm not saying I'm fucking perfect at all. I'm just as a, a, a as much to blame. If you listen to this podcast, you'll understand how we are all guilty in all of this. I didn't really understand this until I became a father for the first time. You know, and it took that for me to be like, oh, fuck, you know, how, how do we how do we do this in a way that's going to be a little bit better? So we talk about food a lot. But if we're going and, and we had the Hulu show. Uh, next thing you eat, where we're trying to talk about it, by no means am I or Chris, we should be the apostles of environmental change. No. But I think that's sort of what's powerful is we're learning as well, right? And if we can start talking about it, because I'm not just more curious about it, we're all invested in this. We all are. Because when I spend time with my kids, there's always an hour or two a day where I always project what they're going to be like in the future, Right. And that's why it matters to me. And I think it matters to have someone like John. It matters why we have someone like David Wallace Wells. If you want to listen to something that is, um, I don't know, a little bit harder. <laughs> if, you, if you are a true, you, you think Eeyore is, is an is a, is a optimistic person, like I do sometimes, <laughs> you should listen to the David Wallace Wells and, uh, and his book. Um, what's his book titled again? The Uninhabitable Earth. Yeah fucking hard read <laughs> i mean that title that title just says it all i mean there's different we, we talk about this a little we joke a little dave at the end of this just like there's a different way to motivate everybody and one is a scare tactic this one's about people who want to get shit done but you know we st- we're still going to write the one that's just shaming you into this that's still coming yes so stay tuned for this interview with uh, john Dor and and ryan pachazaram This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new 
Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. You know, one of Chris and I, are, we have a mutual friend that had a child before we did. And the first thing that happened was they became extremely paranoid for the future. And I sort of just was like, whatever. You're, you're, you're sort of Eeyore-like anyway. This is your default setting. Just calm down. We're going to be okay. Then Chris had two kids. And then he became Eeyore-like and paranoid for the future. And I was like, okay. And then I got to know John Doerr over the years. And he's one of the, the most optimistic people, the kindest people I've ever met, besides being one of the most successful individuals. And there's nothing you can sort of interact with in your life that hasn't been touched by John in some way or some form. And as I got to know John, he became more pessimistic about the environment as well. And I became a father and I became extremely pessimistic and scared for the future as well. And here we are. And these guys, Ryan and John, published a book called Speed and Scale, an Action Plan for Solving Our Climate Crisis Now. And one more sort of anecdote to this. A while back, we had some uh, business consultants. We had the executive leadership team. All of a sudden, Momofuku had all these Harvard Business School graduates working for us. And next thing you know, I'm sitting in a room having to write out OKRs. I, I don't even know what that is or what that was back then. And sure enough, over the decade plus, it's been instrumental in shaping and improving our short and long-term goals for Momofuku. And we're talking to one of those individuals that have really helped popularize OKRs. And in some ways, this book is a organized, multifaceted OKR. It's the ultimate OKR. Yes. The ultimate OKR. And John, you are one of the most optimistic, hopeful people I know. Are you still hopeful for the future of, the, of this globe and the environment? I'm incredibly hopeful. And uh, there's good reason, I think, to have hope, ranging from the anger of impassioned youth and teenagers, the next generation. My daughter, Mary, was one. That's how I got into this, Greta Thunberg, uh, all the way to the movements that are underway on the business front. Uh, I, I wish our political leaders were moving faster. But the way I came to this was 15 years ago, I, I saw Al Gore's movie, you probably did as well, An Inconvenient Truth. And that, that really put this issue foremost on the minds of mostly school teachers. That was the segment that was most moved by his movie. But after the movie, I, I had some friends over for dinner with my family. We went around the dinner table and uh, I asked everybody's opinions. When it came to my daughter, Mary, she turned to me, quiet, but angry. She said, Dad, I'm scared. I'm angry. Your generation created this problem. You better fix it. <laughs> and the room went silent. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. So I set out on a journey to learn as much as I could about climate and the crisis and, and what could be done. And I, I started investing also, also, David, over the course of maybe six or so years, invested a billion dollars in 70 different climate-related new ventures. Some of them failed quickly and spectacularly, but others, uh, we stood by them through the tough times and, and they ended up being leaders, helping to create markets. Most importantly, 
getting others on the planet to go to work at the ultimate OKR, which is to take the 59 gigatons per year that we emit, we spew this into our atmosphere as if it's some kind of free and open sewer. We've got to take that 59 gigatons and drive it to net zero by 2050. And we've got to cut it in half by 2030. That's just eight years at a time when emissions otherwise would be growing. So we've got to cut emissions in 2022, 8%, and then 8% again in 2023, and 8% again in 2024. We have never cut emissions in the history of the planet. So this this is a tall order. It can be done. I am, I am hopeful. I may not be optimistic, but I'm hopeful uh, because failure is not an option. So I, I can I can personally attest that Dave is not lying when he says he is uh, he's become an apostle for OKRs because I I have received I have I've gotten the gospel secondhand through Dave Chang of OKRs and the importance of these things and 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 you're right this book is the ultimate OKR it is a practical approach to solving the climate crisis but I, I want to back up a tiny bit here and for our audience's sake and and uh, whichever one of you wants to feel this Ryan or John. Can you explain what an OKR is and why it is going to be effective here? OKRs are simply a goal-setting system. They're not a silver bullet, but they allow teams to achieve real operating excellence and to do more than they might have otherwise thought possible. So their big advantage is they allow you to focus and get everybody aligned, committed, and tracking their progress against stretch goals, nearly impossible things to achieve. And this is a system that was invented decades ago by Andy Grove, famous CEO of Intel, who was regarded as the best manager of his or maybe any other era. Focus, alignment, commitment, tracking, stretching. Now, what is it? It's simply a rigorous way of writing down what you want to have accomplished. That's the objective. And then how you're going to get it done, the key results. And in the world of climate, for a moment, we have lots of goals. We've got the Paris goals. We've got the Glasgow goals. We've, we've had goals galore. The difference between goals and a plan is key results. Those are the clear, measurable, quantifiable, date-bound steps that will declare, I'm going to get here by this time in this way. And so our plan has six great big objectives. And for your listeners, these are available for free on the website, speedandscale.com. In fact, I encourage you to go there, download a copy of the plan, print them out, review this. But the first is to electrify transportation, which means we're going to use batteries and electricity to power our vehicles and our trucks not gas and diesel. The second big goal is to decarbonize the grid. This is the biggest opportunity of all. It's to use solar, wind, and safe nuclear instead of burning natural gas or burning coal to generate our electricity. The third, which I know you care deeply about and is of particular interest to our audience, is to fix the food system. There's some eight gigatons every year of CO2 emissions that come about because we eat more beef than we need to, more dairy. The way we grow our foods 
causes needless emissions. And there's food waste. Some 35% of the food in the world is wasted. We can fix all those problems to great advantage. Goal number four is to protect nature, which means stopping deforestation, protect our oceans. The fifth is to clean up industry, how we make cement, how we make steel. And then finally, after we've added up those five things, there are still going to be some carbon emissions that we can't eliminate. And so our strategy there is to develop carbon removal, that is to plant more trees or to try to make direct air capture affordable. This, by the way, I think is the hardest of all six of these goals. But they add up to 59 gigatons. And if you look to the backside of the plan, for every one of those objectives, there's three to five very specific time-bound key results. Chris and David, if we get these done, we will avert catastrophic irreversible climate crisis. And if we don't, we're screwed. What would you say, Ryan? Yeah. You know, this all started out, I mean, Chris, like you said, and David, you know, you use OKRs in your business meetings, right? John posed a question Christmas 2019. What would it look like if you applied OKRs to the climate crisis? And so we went for that big objective, drawing down the 59 billion tons of emissions. And we did what I guess any engineer or investor would do is, is go and talk to experts. And so we spent time with almost a hundred people trying to understand transportation, our grid, food. Food is so hard. Materials, concrete, steel, and so forth to come up with these objectives and set of key results that can guide us. Because this problem can be overwhelming. I think one thing, you know, I'm a, a new dad as well, too. I've got a three-year-old and you have this angst and anxiety about the future. But you know, that's not where the conversation should end. The conversation needs to shift towards action. Like, what can I do? What should I do? Because I think for us, our generation, it's like it's time to act. It's time to link arms with both those older and younger to do this. And, um, you know, John covered six objectives that craft how we go from 59 billion to zero. The question is, how do we get there faster, right? What are the accelerants? The second part of the book talks about four the really big one, winning the policy and politics, right? We've got to get countries to make commitments, pass policies in order to see momentum behind this. So that's one lever. The next lever is turning movements into action, right? Not just the Greta Thunbergs, but the Larry Finks of the world as well, too. So at the ballot box, in the boardroom, people saying this matters and we've got to do something about it. So that's the other lever you can pull. The final two are innovation and investment. Innovation, because we need new technologies. There's no way around it. And we've got to drive down the cost because some of these cleaner, greener things are more expensive. And if we expect the world to be able to adopt them, they've got to be cheaper. And then, of course, on the investment side, right, every single 59 billion tons of emissions, that's someone else's business model. And we need to deploy things to take that away from them. And so these four levers are the things we can shape. And when I say we, I mean everyone listening for us on this, uh, on this podcast, like we can shape these four accelerants. This is uh, incredibly powerful. Do you guys have come up with the solutions? That's the hard part, right? How do we get people to act on this, right? Because as you say, Ryan, it's daunting, it's overwhelming. And now you have laid out pretty clearly, very clearly, what we need to do to reduce 59 gigatons of carbon emissions. 
But the next step is like, this isn't my company. This isn't Intel. How do we encourage everybody to be like, I'm invested. I need to do this. Let's push this forward. I'm a leader in this as well. Well, we wrote the book for the leader inside everyone, people from all walks of life. I didn't write it to convince people to go vegan or to take individual actions. Those are necessary and expected, but they won't be enough to get this job done in time. So the book tells stories. Uh, It talks about a cross-country track team in Maryland that's running behind diesel school buses and saying, that's crazy. So they team up with parents and they get their entire school district to adopt electric buses. Or it tells the story of employees who pressure their workplace to commit to net zero and not only make that commitment, but then go ahead and meet it. So as I was writing this book, I I spoke with Jim Collins, as you know, the guy who wrote Good to Great. And he said, John, you're not interested in the most readership. You want the right readership. And the essence of leadership, the essence of leadership is using your personal magic, your power, your poetry to get others to want to do what must be done. This lays out what must be done, but it's not a silver bullet. It's going to require leaders for every one of these key results. And so we're going to translate this plan into action in the form of a website that highlights the commitments, tracks the progress, and shines a spotlight on the best practices to achieve each and every one of these. I I think that something you you, you guys write in the book very early, you know, John, you say gets to what Dave is saying and something that he says to me often in the context of our own business, a list of things you want is not a plan. (laughs) A list of problems you identify is not a plan. Like a, you know, a list of all the horrible things that are happening as a result of climate change is not a plan to fix climate change. Like this is actually, I think the, the, the most impressive part of the book to me, like, like you guys are talking about, this is not a book that's just saying, here are all of the horrible things happening. I hope that one of you, you know, fixes this. You know, I think that a lot of us look at that sixth key result you have there, sort of remove carbon and and having the technology to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. I honestly think most people are just sort of sitting around assuming that somebody's going to come up with that answer. I don't have to do it one through five if somebody just creates a vacuum that I just plug in and sucks the carbon out of the atmosphere, right? Like that's probably what most of us are hoping for, honestly. Oh, and, and for that hope, by the way, I think folks need to know the carbon removal crutch cannot be the first thing we lean on, right? Like the amount that we're going to need, even if we make the most aggressive actions, right? Everyone switches to EVs. We've got a clean grid. We're eating less beef and things like that. There's still going to be 10 billion tons of emissions left over because as humanity, we emit. And so <laughs> to get carbon removal technologies to that scale, Chris, we need to be deploying that as much as we can now. But for all of us as leaders, we've got to look where we can cut and where we can conserve and do cutting and conserving without sacrificing, right? Like that's the neat, most beautiful thing about today is that a lot of the alternatives are just as performant, just as delicious, and just as, you know, joyful as the life we live today. So there is a clean, green future that is without that kind of feeling of sacrifice. Can I ask, because, you know, we we have covered a lot of topics on this podcast. Food is clearly one of the main ones. And 
on the OKR for food, there isn't anything that I think people that follow food would find sexy. It's farm soils, fertilizers, consumption, rice, and food waste, which is probably the easiest one, but it's so like non-sexy. It's so, quite frankly, gross to people because I've talked to people about this. Nobody wants to do it. These are not headline grabbing attention things to motivate people in food. So how do we get people to find this compelling, to move on this, to act on this? You know, one way to think about it is it's the burps, the poops, and the farts, David. <laughs> it's the uh, burps and methane emission that comes from beef and lamb. That's a really big part of the problem, right? And so what John said earlier, right, we were not expecting people to be vegan. To have that expectation would be really impossibly hard. What we're asking and really pushing folks to do is to pick a lower emission source of food. You see that beef on the menu, work your way down, right? Pick another thing like chicken, fish, or the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Meat Burger. On the poops, you've got fertilizer. The way that we invest in our soil, the way it's produced today is very dirty and, emit, and, and emits a lot. And so we've got to find cleaner ways of that. And then of course, you know, picking the farts. It's like when we uh, throw food, into the trash and it doesn't go into a compost bin, it sits in the bottom of a landfill without oxygen producing more methane. And so in that world, it's really important to compost. So if to repeat that again, it's like eating less beef and lamb, it's finding ways to switch to better fertilizers and supporting farmers who do and really invest in their soil. And it's composting and wasting less. I know they're not sexy, but those are the behavior changes and things that we have to do to make a dent on this. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This is something like I, I've thought about a lot, though. I think Dave is getting at something really interesting. You have like I, at this point in time, organic agriculture is is widespread, right? Everybody knows what organic is, and there's an association. And I think most people's brains, whether it's whether it's 100 true or not, that organic tastes better. Organic produce is better than conventional produce. And I think like when Dave says it's not sexy. It's really like I'm the consumer and I, I don't care about climate change. I don't whatever, wherever I am on the spectrum of, 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 of action. 
if there's not something in it for me today, if I can't say like, if I buy this organic thing, I don't care that it's helping the environment, but it's better for me to put in my mouth. That's, that's sort of the, the tough part. That's always been hard about, you know, regenerative agriculture because regenerative agriculture isn't the same as organic agriculture, like replenishing topsoil. I think that we have to make things like eating vegetables has to be with the, the, the point, right? Like you have to make that sexier. You have to make other meat sources sexier, more interesting, more delicious, right? Like to, to get to what, what Dave is talking about. And, you know, I, I had tried something like this in the past too. Like, you know, I, my, the, the ER like figure that Dave was talking about in the beginning, we started a nonprofit with the idea that if you can make sort of carbon neutrality, a sexy thing, if you can get the nomas of the world on board to zero out their emissions, if you can put a little sticker in their window, like a lead certification or a, or a Michelin star, then everybody else always wants to follow the leaders. Whatever Dave does at his restaurants, everybody else wants to do. If he starts putting a little sticker on his window, everyone else will too. But the problem there also, you know, to Dave's point is like, even if you can make that sexy, Dave always also says, restaurants don't feed anybody in the grand scheme of things. So like the, for me, the problem, as I read through this book, as somebody who's trying to like find where I can lead is how do you brand this to diners because that's what Dave and I try to do. That's like I think that that's where we can actually affect some change. It's like how do you brand this in a way that is desirable, right? And and and, and from my position, uh, Ryan and, and John, I think it's important that we finally have an idea of steps that we need to do to get to a goal from the food perspective, right? Because so much of food media and food leaders have gotten lost in the fool's gold of arguing about sustainability of agriculture, of organic versus not organic. I don't think that's the answer, right? And we need to really shift what we're talking about. That's clearly important, but that's all it seems that when people talk about the environment, it's farming better. That's basically about it. Chris, like, I don't think I'm wrong in stating that, right? That's the, that's the sexy thing. It's slow food. It's why I've been very critical about slow food. It's it's getting lost in the weeds here a little bit. So I'm very grateful. Thank you guys for creating this OKR for food because, you know, that's our job to disseminate that information. The food uh, OKR is in many ways the most challenging one hmm. because you have 7 billion going to 11 billion decision makers and they're going to eat what they want to eat, not what the central government tells them to eat. So you've got to first create the reality and communicate then the reality of healthy, delicious, sexy food for people to eat. And then you've got an education challenge. You've got to brand this. You've got to make it expected that people are going to do some, this isn't the best word, but some form of carbon emissions or emissions labeling to educate people about the health and social benefits of making, making better choices here. And we need to get a massive global subsidy effort realigned. In 2019, the US provided $49 billion of agricultural support. The European Union, over 100 billion. China, 180 billion. These are direct subsidies to farmers not to do regenerative farming, typically to reinforce the interests of the food ag establishment. So there's three big steps to be taken here. But the two of you, Chris and 
David, you have the platform, the understanding, and the personal power to lead in this revolution. I'm thrilled to hear you're thinking about this and committed to it. How would you proceed? I have always felt that food waste is where we can focus our efforts, and that's through education and teaching people to be more frugal and how frugality can make delicious things. And that's the lowest hanging fruit. And that's what we try to do on all of our media and podcasts. You know, not all the time, but we try, right? Is letting people know that it's not just stupid to throw away food, but, you know, when you make food with all the scraps, you can become a better cook to begin with. That I feel is the the most direct way we can affect change for, you know, uh, this 2050 goal. Um, the next step, I think, is again, through education in general, right? Like, I have gotten in too many arguments with people that are against GMO and things like this, or I already see the problems about uh, cultivated meats and meat alternatives. I get it. I can, I respect the disagreements. You know, I, I understand their apprehension to it, but I don't think they understand the inevitability, right? We're going to have to embrace these things. It would be great if we didn't have to, but we have to. So that to me is, I think what Chris and I try to do is not tell people they're wrong, but to start this conversation because we haven't had these conversations in food. It's, it's been an either or proposition for so long. And what we're trying to do is say, listen, like there are many more ways to get to this goal. Let's just talk about what these goals are. And we need to respect each perspectives along the way. Yeah. Let me, I, I agree with Dave uh, uh, completely. I think that, uh, but let, let me, I'll give you my experience of reading through the food section of this book. I was riding on a real high horse for a second because I was like, oh, John and Ryan say that dairy is horrible, is worse than even like beef cattle for emissions. Cheese specifically is terrible. It takes, you know, what, 10, 10 gallons of milk to produce a, a pound of mozzarella, right? Like that's, it's, it's so, it's like the one cow's whole daily output for your, your mozzarella bowl. And I was like, Psh, I'm lactose intolerant. I'm, I'm, I'm good over here. Like I can't be eating that much cheese. It's all you cheese eaters doing this. And then I got to the next one, which was rice. And I was like, come on, yeah. come on, John. Why are you going to do us like that? Yeah. Why are you going to I mean, say I'll, rice I'll, I'll be bad? honest. I, I, I intentionally skipped those pages. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't want to know that I can't be eating rice. This is this is bad. And, and look, rice is a fixable problem. I understand it's an agriculture. It's like practice, right? People need to be incentivized yeah. to to grow rice in the in the right way. You guys should read the book to sort of understand the, the science of of why rice and uh, rice agriculture is is uh, a heavy emitter. But as I was thinking about that, I was like, oh, this is this is kind of the solution right here for me at least. Is knowing is starting to like base my decisions on the kind of person and eater I want to be, right? And this gets, gets down to labeling and everything that you're talking about. I think that whenever I've been out with people in recent years and we're ordering from a menu, I have actually sat with groups of friends who I, I am somebody who's very invested in this, but I never make my eating decisions based on their environmental impact, their emissions. I kind of mm. just eat what I want to eat. And, and so like I've sat with people in recent years who were like, I don't eat burgers anymore. Like I don't want to eat a burger because of the emissions and things like this. I think that just hearing your peers factor that into their decision-making a little bit. And I don't think we have to be evangelistic about it, but I think that, you know, Dave talks all the time about not wanting to cook something because it's wasteful or not wanting to throw something out because it's wasteful. And I think when you, when, when our listeners and our, and, and I hear him say that it directly affects my thinking too. 
Like Dave and I cook very similarly. I'm influenced greatly by him. But when he starts talking about like, I hate throwing away this, I hate throwing away cilantro stems. I find myself in front of my refrigerator considering what I can do with cilantro stems. And I think that's part of it is just is also saying from time to time, whenever we whenever we do make these decisions based on like an environmental standpoint, making that vocal, right? If if people around you say, like, oh, am I supposed to be doing that? Am I supposed to be thinking about that? Then they do. Like it's peer pressure. Literally, it's just peer pressure that I think like is is part of education. But, you know, to your point, John, I think that education and being able to make those smart decisions, having a label on your food that says, this is how much you can you can weigh these back and forth. And I, I wonder if one of you guys could speak to sort of the comparison to, to nutrition labels and how the effect that those had. Well, it's helping people make decisions, right? I mean, calorie counts, sugar counts, let people choose, right? Like there is this agency that you want to give people. And in that spirit, like maybe we play a little game, Dave and Chris, like a really quick game. I'm just going to say two foods and you've got to tell me which one you think per kilogram produces less emissions or took less emissions to produce. So we already know beef and lamb are at the top of this, right? So we're not going to pick those. Those are the easy ones. You see on a menu, lamb or pork, which do you pick? Well, I mean, from a taste perspective and a climate, I'm going to go with pork. <laughs> I I agree. I choose pork. <laughs> and and pork is three times less uh, emitting than lamb. So pork is good. Eggs- see, it's, a, it's truly a magical, mystical animal <laughs> for good reason. <laughs> How about eggs or fish? Ooh, eggs or fish. I'm going to go with eggs as, for higher. Eggs are higher, Dave. Is that what you're saying? Eggs are lower. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with eggs lower. Both correct. Eggs, the eggs are lower. How about chicken or fish? I think chicken is higher. Chicken, chicken is lower. Ooh, disagreement. And, and it's right that there's disagreement. It depends. It's actually how the fish is farmed and caught. Like mm. the actual process, if you actually catch fish really well, think about the transportation. A lot of the emissions in food is also how it moves. That's why you say people say, go buy local. That's because you're not putting it into a vehicle that's emitting. Um, two more, tofu or peas? I think tofu might sadly be higher. Tofu is higher. That's right. To- tofu is higher. Peas is, is much less. Nuts or shrimp? Shrimp. Shrimp. Higher. Lower. I say shrimp higher. Dave says shrimp lower. Nuts are 60 times less than God shrimp. damn it. Fuck you, shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> you guys crushed it, though. You got four out of five. 100% correct. I am so impressed. Wine or beer? Oh, man. I Wine think... is less. I mean, no, I actually. Uh, factoring in transportation, French wines. Wine is mm. No, nah, beer is way more. Actually, no. Budweiser has breweries. All over the. I'm going to say beer is less. Beer is less. I'm going to say beer is higher. It's it's transportation is the key piece here, but it's practically the same. So so don't worry. Enjoy that beer or <laughs> wine, drink whatever you want. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, but that that's the thing. It's like I feel. I mean, Dave, how many of those were educated guesses for you, or like did you feel feel pretty confident about? Uh, I mean. Part of it is if it got the questions got more specific, I think I could have answered them better because I, you know, I've worked with these farms before. I have an understanding, right? And if it was wild shrimp versus farm shrimp, you know, aquaculture versus you know all of these things, I think what is most compelling, and again, this is going to take government to pass legislation to do this and FDA is to put the carbon stamp on products. Like we've seen the power of organic versus non-organic. 
That has fundamentally changed how people eat, at least in the Western world. I would bet a lot, you know, even a couple internal organs of mine that if you put carbon stamp on some food products, people would really change how they buy things. I have no doubt in my mind. Chris, what do you think about that? I I, I 100% think so. That's sort of what I was getting to was, I think right now we're just guessing. I think there are probably people out there making those choices based on just like, I think this is probably better for the environment. This package looks greener, you know, but I think the the labeling would, would enable people to make that decision and probably like cause people who wouldn't normally make that choice to make it. I think that's totally true. I mean, that's, that's what happened. Ryan, what's the opposite? What's preventing this from happening? Oh yeah. I mean, so for for this one here, it's where collective action comes in, right? Like we're all talking about a great idea, an idea to put food label uh, emission labels on food. And so now this is to John's point, the leader in you, right? Individually, we can make all the decisions to pick lower emitting options, but collectively, if we come together and say, Hey, city of New York, state of California, United States, put these labels on all of our food. That's how we go for the gigatons. It's like making these things happen at a level that's so much bigger than us, but doesn't take many of us to actually come through with it. Dave, you think there's going to be a lot of pushback from manufacturers? I mean, yeah, you're going to see many companies in the food industry disappear overnight, but that's just, that's just culture. That happens. I'd like, I'd like to say this is not some kind of green party that we're having where we're all going to kumbaya our way <laughs> into a 50% emissions reduction by 2030 in just eight years. This is a revolution. And in true revolutions, there are winners and there are losers. And what we've got to stay maniacally focused on is going for the gigatons. Can we take nine gigatons of emissions every year from our food system and drive that down to two gigatons. Take seven gigatons out of the system. And the plan doesn't say every way we'll do it, but it focuses us on the biggest steps that can be taken, that must be taken. What's neat about putting a measure in, right? Like, let's say these labels go on items. Sure, there's some companies, uh, uh, food growers and food producers that are not going to be able to react to it. But I think for most, they're going to go, oh, that's how much carbon emissions are in the footprint of this food, just like they did with fats, just like they did with sugars, they're going to find new ways, right? To lower that number, better transportation, better ways of farming. And so like, while the label may look really high in the beginning, it's going to force action by a whole industry, just like miles per gallon requirements did for cars. There's going to be hopefully a similar thing here if it does happen for, for food. So is that this is sort of consumer demand? I'm, I'm the, uh, economy dum-dum on this on this call by a long shot but is is consumer demand the thing that's going to drive action in terms of some of these you know the technologies exist regenerative agricultural practices exist in the book you guys talk about you know studies that are that are proving uh, promising about feeding cows seaweed and reducing their emissions by 80 percent but i think like implementation seems to stop or stall at a certain point but is it like if enough people in the market are asking for this, we're going to start feeding kelp to cows? Is that is that how this works? Yes. This <laughs> campaign requires all hands on deck. We've got to work bottom up and top down. We've got to change the subsidies in the agricultural system. We've got to get consumers to demand better practices and lower emission foods. 
It has to become the most important thing in the lives of tens of thousands of leaders all around the globe. And we can do that. I mean, I, I don't know, Dave. I feel <laughs> I feel like heartened that John is on the case. <laughs> yeah. Like, but like I also don't want to get like lazy because I'm like, oh, John will take care of it, obviously. But like it feels good to have people, serious people with real, real world experience building and, and executing massively successful objectives like on the case, right? That's got to feel somewhat hard. But there, that, but there is no alternative. Right. <laughs> That's what people really need to understand. There is no alternative, right? While you have the choice uh, and the time, actually, there is no time. You actually have to do it now. And that's what the book basically emphasizes. Like this has to happen. You know, this should have happened a long time ago already. So I, I, I have a lot of reservations for how to message this to the people in food, right? It is going to be a seismic change for them. People that eat, people that work in food are resistant to change. And I always use this as my litmus test and benchmark to explain how allergic people are to change. In America, we still don't use the metric system, which is the dumbest thing <laughs> humanly possible. You mean you don't want to use a more accurate way of measuring things in a business where everything matters in terms of how you make money? You don't want to use a more accurate system is beyond stupid to me. If we can't change the metric system, how the hell are we going to get other people to change how they eat and what they consume? And that's that's the conversation. And then at least we have some goalposts, right, uh, and benchmarks to, to work towards. But I think for people like Chris and myself, we need to still get this conversation moving at a more rapid level. So that, that's on us. The onus is on us to, to make that happen. One of the learnings Kleiner had in its investing in this space is that the cleaner and greener thing usually costs more. And when it finally comes down, that green premium actually becomes a discount. Sure, people will run towards it and switch. But when it comes to food, taste is king, right? You put it in your mouth. It gives you an experience. It's like if you can't win on that, if the cleaner and greener thing doesn't win on that, I think this is hopeless. But I would have to argue and say, like, when you look at the list of lower emitting foods, and the work that you and the entire, you know, chef cooking food community has done, you make those incredibly delicious. Like, that's how you win. I totally agree. You, you know, we've been talking about, about hope and about optimism. I think this is a good place to focus on movements and the power, not just of movements as protests, but movements to cause action. And so we tell the story of Greta Thunberg, who in 2019... 2018, I'll say, was a 15-year-old Swedish teenager alone in front of parliament staging a school strike. A year later in 2019, she got 4 million youth to turn out in 100 cities for a school strike. So this question of climate for the young is not some kind of option. It is their future on the line. And I'm a supporter of their not just their protests, but their civil disobedience to push this campaign to the forefront. Yeah. We really need them to make the case to the schools, to the parents, to the authorities that uh, the time for action is now. It may surprise you, but Ryan and I chose to profile Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, a Fortune mm -hmm. One company that employs more than 2 million people globally. 
the most sales and revenues, their commitment, not just to be net zero by 2040 with all of their supply chains, but to become the first regenerative company, setting aside millions of acres of land protected from development. Same story for the oceans. The ability of our investors and our our business leaders to move their supply chains is another reason I think to be to be hopeful and to zero in on movements that cause collective action to occur. Yeah, I think I think Dave Dave sort of started this podcast off talking about you as a hopeful person. We, we started talking, like you said, John, about optimism versus pessimism. In the book, you talk about Greta Thunberg starting from a place of anger and just disappointment in the people who had created this problem, but sort of evolving that into cautious optimism. And I, I think that, that this is this is the key, right? Because because too much pessimism or negativity about the problem can just turn into what, like nihilism and sort of just, I don't care. There's no, there's no way out of this, but I've actually seen, I mean, Dave is funny because he, you know, you, you sort of characterize it as like, you know, Eorism or, or pessimism. But I, I think that like deep down, you're also hopeful about this too, Dave. I, like, I, I, I'm the best kind of optimist. I'm a pessimist that's hopes to be wrong, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm I'm planning for the worst, right? And 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 um, you know, I I I really am grateful for for this book and my relationship with you, John, to to be able to have you come on this podcast and talk about something that, uh, you know, we have to, right? And now that I'm a father of two, this is more pressing to me than ever before, right? And and it's not just what I feed them, but it's what are they going to eat in the world they're going to live in when they're my age. Um, so this is music to my ears because there are specific actions that, that you and others in the community can take to get us to switch to induction heating, to publish emissions counts on restaurant dishes and menus and packaged foods, buying rice and other ingredients from producers that are using sustainable methods to grow it, making sure that food waste is composted. I feel I'm worshiping here at the altar of the premier platform for communicating <laughs> about the future of food. I'm counting on you. <laughs> can you, can you just really quick, you, I, I appreciate, I think that what our audience really appreciates is like those specific takeaways. And, and I know this is about group action, but when it comes to individual action, you, you know, you talked about rice and then can you touch on, can, can you just touch on the, what you just talked about in terms of like heat sourcing and, and, and fuel and things like that? Ryan, you want to take that? Yeah, of course. So, so when you when you look across the book, right, we've spent so much time talking about how fix food, right? This is chapter three. Chapter one is about electrifying transportation. Chapter two is about decarbonizing the grid, right? When you think about um, delivery fleets, those have got to go electric, right? That's chapter one and how we in the food industry can tackle that one. For decarbonizing the grid, when you think about the restaurants, you think about the buildings that we're in, Getting clean energy to power them is a humongous way to lower the footprint of a food uh, uh, establishment. But the other way, too, is to get gas out of buildings. This is more of a broader piece, right? And that switch there leads us to induction stoves, right? Induction stoves for cooking, heat pumps for heating and cooling. That's the, the wave that we need to ride. And at least from the doing interviews and research around the books on induction, the control and what it can allow you to do and the amazing restaurants that can use it. But this is me preaching to two people that are so steep, you know, in this is what's your point of view on induction? 
I'll take this one, Chris. Induction is something that I, I remember in 2000 being introduced when Alain Ducasse opened up in New York City in the Essex House, one of the great chefs of our generation. And it was all uh, induction burners. And I think that was, that was what all the cooks were talking about. This guy's a lunatic. Can you believe it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he wasn't doing it for the environmental reasons. He was doing it for the technical precision, right? And over a 20 plus year period, induction has gotten better, right? It just has. It is still not there yet for a lot of people to adopt it. But if you go to Europe, when I visit my friends' homes in Europe, nobody has gas. If you go to China, I haven't seen a gas range unless I go out to the, the, the countryside where it's mostly actually on coal. So America actually, I think, is in dead last probably in adoption of gas, I mean, uh, uh, of induction. It works extremely well. And I'll be honest, I, I feel guilty. I didn't install an induction stove in my kitchen. And I think about it all the time because I made the selfish decision that I can't cook in a clay pot. Right. Mm. And, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to find another way, which again, probably would be, maybe it's my job to invest or work on an idea where I can create a pot that will cook on induction. Right. That's the next step. <laughs> There's some fist fist pumping going on from John and Ryan right now for the for <laughs> listeners. So, so this this process is is not going to happen overnight, but I'm acknowledging it on my own end as well. Induction is the future, and it's it. Listen, it's going to be a very very difficult road for Americans to change their ways. Right, cooking over gas is this you know red blooded bravado American way, and clearly that's not going to work anymore. What percent of Americans do you think use gas stoves? I think 90%. It's got to be 90%. Yeah. Chris, I can't imagine it's less than 90. It's in the 30 to 40% range. What? What? No is, it, is the rest like the coil, electric coils? Is that like most of it? Okay. That's right. And so this switch here is, is you know, there is this aspirational picture of gas, that gas fired, you know, red knobs and the whole piece there. But David, I'm part, I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the goddamn problem. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we both just assumed that everybody was a guess. Like that's this is exactly it. We are the problem. It's literally, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but gas is aspirational, but induction is too. From what you're talking about, right? Like when that first stove was in, there was not a reason to do it for an environmental reason. It was because it performed better. And I think if there's another message that the audience here can take away is performance and taste has to win. If we're going to solve this emission crisis that we have, it's got to taste better, it's got to cook better, and that's that's the way to it. I don't know if it's a book or a series or videos or all the above, but excellence through induction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, induction has gotten better, and I think it is the future. Um, I think we yeah. probably have to do some kind of content to, to educate people on it. You do. For it's, sure. un it's unhealthy to have gas in your home. I know. I have an um, air quality uh, reader in my home, and every time I cook something, it goes through the roof. But when I have a, uh, an induction tabletop, nothing happens. So that should tell you everything. That should tell you everything. Well, I, I think that... <laughs> Like I said, I think this book is amazing because, you know, Dave and I are obviously going to gravitate toward the food section and find the little parts. I mean, it's, it's, uh, this is, this is it, right? Dave just 
identified where we can make a difference in messaging and education and, and sort of figured out his part as a leader. I mean, Dave is for me, you know, and I think for most people, one of the most important invisible people in food, but he can't single-handedly affect agricultural policy. He can make individual choices and, and I share them. I can't, Chris. <laughs> as much as you keep on saying it's a you can't, as much as as much as that uh, that infinity gauntlet you're always wearing in your hand uh, makes you believe you can snap things into existence, uh, I think that that's the, the magic of this book. Is like other people are going to skip the food section, honestly, and go to the section that pertains to them and, and find the key results they can drive toward, the objectives that they can drive toward. But I I don't know. Like I it, it does fill me with hope to have a clearly defined objective, which is to be completely uh, carbon neutral by 2050 and, and halfway there by 2030, right? Cool. That's the plan. Anything else you guys want to add, John Ryan? I think one thing we neglected to comment on is climate justice and the way this affects the poor of the world. The climate crisis is a amplifier of inequities. It takes inherent inequities and it makes them even worse because the people that are paying the highest price, suffering the most, are the ones least responsible for having created this problem and least capable of doing anything about it. So I think the U.S. has a special obligation as the largest historic emitter to go first here in terms of proving to the world that you can get to a zero carbon economy. We've got to do it so other nations know it's possible. And we should go first to lower the cost for everyone else all along the way. You know, just the, the last year, which isn't over yet, hurricanes, the storms, the wildfire fires, the, the flooding in, in China, I think, was estimated to be some $30 billion. Floods in Europe, even more. Hurricane Ida in the US is over $100 billion in damages. And it's got to got to raise the question, when are we going to come to terms with the fact that it's cheaper to save this planet than to keep ruining it? There is a grand vision here. It's for a new clean energy economy for 25 million net new jobs by 2030. 25 million people, that's more than are employed in construction across all of Europe and the US. And we will lose some jobs along the way. But I'm convinced, I'm inspired by what Laureen Paul Jobs says at the end of the book, she says, you know, John, I think we should look on the climate crisis as one of humankind's greatest opportunities yeah. to build the world the way, the way it ought to be. John says that so well. There's so much that we can do. Uh, if you're listening, you are a leader, right? You can tap into the leader in you and we have to take action and we have to go for the gigatons. And I know we can do it. Can you, before him, can you let someone know just how much a gigaton actually is? <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. A, a, a gigaton is a billion tons, right? This is a billion tons of CO2, right? To get a sense of what one ton is, it's like when you fill up about 110 gallons of gas, right? That's like maybe a month of, of driving if you're living in LA, right? That's a ton of CO2. Right. One ton of CO2 emissions is 110 gallons of gas. You want to know what a gigaton is? Well, that's 220 coal-fired power plants. Like This is why people are so against coal. Just 200 of them is a billion tons. It's that gigaton. And this is just sitting in our atmosphere, and it makes things warmer. 
And there's nothing you can, you know, say or argue about that. And so it's our quest and our cause to find ways to drive down our emissions and get that count of CO2 and other greenhouse gases in the air down, down, down. You know, this this book was a hopeful book, Dave, but I feel like there's another climate book for us to write, just like tiger parenting people into this. Just like that's usually how we ask people to do things. Clearly, that's what OKRs really are. <laughs> tiger parenting. Tiger, tiger, tiger parenting people into this. Yeah, I mean, half half of our emissions is fine, but I mean, you know, your sister got 100%. So, I mean. <laughs> One of my uh, favorite stories from introducing the book, the book tour, comes from a very savvy reporter who at the end of the interview told me, you know, John, every night I'm reading one or two pages of the book to my daughter. And we talk about these issues, these matters. I I had never thought that it would be a platform for parents and kids to get straight with each other about their anxieties around this. I need a board book version for the little ones, but you guys got to get on that one, the board book. Um, well, this is amazing. I, I, I feel I feel motivated, strangely, even though it's Friday afternoon. I'm tired. <laughs> I feel motivated. I, I'm super grateful. Thanks for giving us the entree to reach your community. It means a lot that you would come on. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you both. Thank you guys for listening to that interview with John and Ryan. Please check out Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now. Um, if you want to see this OKR, which is, again, like there's there's 10 points, but the first six that are actionable are buy electric transportation, decarbonize the grid, fix the food, which is more applicable to this podcast, protect nature, clean up the industry, remove carbon, but there's a lot of things we can all do on the food front. So please do it. You can visit speedandscale.com, one word, to find out more information. Go check it out. Thank you, guys.